We turn in God's Word tonight to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. We're going to read the first 31 verses of this chapter. Our text is going to be found in verses 27 through 31. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, which had betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord appointed me. And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he answered him to never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. Now at that feast the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. They had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. 
Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now here are the verses of our text. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. Thus far we read God's word tonight. I mentioned our text is found in verses 27 through 31 of this chapter. The Sanhedrin bound Jesus and now led him to the Roman governor very early on the morning of Friday. The governor's name was Pontius Pilate. The ruling body of the Jews had condemned Jesus to death in the wee hours of the night, but they had no power of themselves to execute their judgment upon Jesus. The Jews, you see, were under Roman rule. The Roman government alone had the right to punish a man by death. So the wicked Jews, in order to put Jesus to death, had to gain the approval of Rome. And that they did by bringing Jesus before the Roman government's representative, Pontius Pilate. Jesus now stood outside of the praetorium, the judgment hall of Pilate, and the Jews leveled their accusations against Jesus. Jesus stood in silence, not answering them, their accusations. Even when Pilate asked that of him, Jesus never said A word. But we find that Jesus now entered, or that Pilate now entered into the judgment hall there in the praetorium. And there, of course, he expected Jesus to speak on himself or himself, of himself in his defense. The Jews would not enter into that praetorium because, after all, that place belonged to the Gentiles and it was unclean for them as good Jews to enter in there. So Pilate now questioned Jesus repeatedly. The result of that questioning of Pilate is that it was proved that Jesus was entirely innocent of any crime. Pilate knew that the Jews had delivered Jesus to him simply on the basis of their envy, their jealousy. Jesus was gaining too much of a following. He was becoming too popular in Israel. And the Jewish leaders did not appreciate that. So Pilate attempted every way possible to wiggle out from under-sentencing Jesus. His first attempt, he sent Jesus to Herod to be tried and condemned. You see, Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee, the place of Jesus' birth. So Pilate hoped to send Jesus 
to Herod so that Herod could could condemn Jesus and not he. But that did not work. Herod simply toyed with Jesus, sparred with him just a little bit, and after allowing his soldiers to mock Jesus, simply sent Jesus back to Pilate. So a second attempt was made by Pilate to wiggle out from sentencing this man, Jesus. Every year about this same time, Pilate allowed to go free a man whom Rome had arrested for certain crimes, but oftentimes the Jews themselves did not see it as such. So Pilate would release a man to the Jews simply to make the Jews happy with him. But this time he brought to their attention a man that the Jews themselves actually hated. It was a man named Barabbas who had robbed many of them and had even committed murder among the Jews. Surely, if the Jews had a choice between this thief and murderer, Barabbas, and this man, Jesus, whom they accused only of being or saying that he was a king, then they would choose to release Jesus unto them and insist that Barabbas be put to death. But Pilate underestimated the hatred that the Jews had of Jesus. They asked that Pilate release Barabbas and that Jesus himself be crucified. Pilate was at wit's end. It was not as if Pilate particularly liked this man, Jesus, but he knew that to condemn Jesus would be a gross injustice. And again, now he washes his hands of the matter, but really doesn't wash his hands of it at all. So we read of one last attempt on Pilate's part to get the Jews to recognize that Jesus was perfectly harmless to them. He had Jesus scourged in front of them. He would present them with this pitiful sight of a man who had now been whipped, and perhaps they might feel sorry enough for Jesus and say, okay, you may let him go that this punishment was enough. But the Jews were insistent that Jesus be crucified. So Pilate then condemned Jesus. He said he didn't, but he actually had to condemn Jesus and then delivered them over to the Jews to be crucified. We're going to consider the cruel treatment of Jesus by the hands of Pilate's soldiers who were more than willing to make this public spectacle of our Lord. In our text, we will learn just how cruelly Jesus was treated before his suffering on the cross. He was mocked as a king by these soldiers. To the eyes of men, he looked a pitiful sight and incapable of harming anyone. He certainly did not appear to be any kind of a king, did he? Wielding power and authority at this time. But in this account, we will indeed see that Christ is the king. And that he walked through his suffering willingly and silently 
because this was exactly the way that Jesus chose to conquer his foes and thus establish his kingdom. Though Christ seemed to be overpowered, humiliated by men, he in fact was, even in this matter, the ruling king. Bearing that reality in mind, we consider tonight this passage of God's word from a very positive point of view, the crowning of our king. The crowning of our king. In the first place, we consider cruel mockery. Secondly, glorious reality. And then finally, our believing response. The scene before us is indeed cruel, perhaps even a bit gory. That men would do to another man what was done to Jesus at this particular time is hard to imagine, but our text serves to emphasize the hatred of men toward God and his anointed one. The soldiers of our text were not the band of ruffians that had taken Jesus captive in the garden and led him to the house of Caiaphas. These men were no longer in the picture. Our text tells us that the soldiers of our that the soldiers now that were going to treat Jesus so cruelly were trained Roman soldiers. They belonged to the band of soldiers, or literally the cohort, a band that belonged specifically to Pilate himself. A cohort was a tenth part of a legion of soldiers, a rather sizable group of men that Pilate kept close at hand with him around the praetorium or the judgment hall in order to guard that hall and himself personally. The soldiers, therefore, did not act at all on their own accord. They acted by order of Pilate. We read in verse 27 of our text that these men took Jesus into the common hall of the praetorium. That is, the public place in the judgment hall where men were tried before others. The first actions of this Roman guard were to strip Jesus of his clothing and to put on him or array him with a scarlet robe, a purple robe. Bear in mind, people of God, that scarlet or purple was a sign of royalty. What was draped upon the, sh the shoulders of our Savior, therefore, was a royal robe. A robe that a king or a prince or a ruler might wear. Where the robe came from, we are not exactly sure, but more than likely it was the same robe that Herod had his soldiers place upon Jesus when they mocked him. We read of that account in Luke 23, verse 11. And Herod, with his men of war, set him, Jesus, at naught, and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. This robe had been taken from Jesus while he was scourged, no doubt, and now was replaced upon the shoulders of our Savior. But the soldiers of Pilate did not stop just simply by placing this robe on the shoulders of Jesus. They also plaited, or they wove together, 
a vine or a twig of sturdy thorns. And then they took that and pressed it into the brow now of our Savior. Notice the significance of that. Roman emperors oftentimes wore a wreath on their head. And that also depicted the Roman royalty. The crown of thorns together with a robe was meant to mock Jesus, therefore, as a king. And then, to add to the final touch of Jesus' wardrobe, these soldiers put a reed, or a stick, in Jesus' right hand. They forced him to hold that stick there before them. Ah, yes. The scepter of a king. Now Jesus sat among them with a full wardrobe of royalty. The robe, the crown, and the scepter in his hand. The question, of course, that needs to be answered in connection with this action of the soldiers is why? Why did they dress Jesus as a king and mock him for being this fake king? The answer is because that is exactly what this trial of Jesus before Pilate was all about. The Jews accused Jesus of making himself a king. And although Matthew makes mention of that, once again in that account there in Luke 23, it's explained a little bit more. The accusations now that the wicked Jews had placed before Pilate. Luke 23, verses 2 and 3. And they, the Jews now, began to accuse Jesus, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, all a lie, saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, Thou sayest it. The trial before Pilate, within the judgment hall, centered around exactly that accusation. And we read of that trial in John 18, verses 33 through 38. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from thence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth 
my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews, and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. Obviously, to Pilate and to his soldiers who were present at Jesus' trial, the whole trial surrounded that one accusation. Was Jesus this king that he claimed to be? Did Jesus, in fact, attempt to rise up in rebellion against Rome or against the Sanhedrin in an attempt to make himself an earthly king? There was, no absol- there was absolutely no evidence to substantiate that claim of the Jews. Jesus was as docile as he could be. He spoke of a spiritual kingdom that he came to establish and showed no interest at all in establishing some kind of a kingdom here on earth. My kingdom is not of this world. But it is true. Jesus did maintain that he was a king. But saying you are a king, in Pilate's eyes, and actually leading a rebellion to become a king are two different things, aren't they? The reason Pilate gave Jesus to his soldiers and the reason they clothed Jesus in this mock royal attire was to prove to the Jews that Jesus was not a king. He was a poor, pathetic man who was perhaps disillusioned with power and royalty, but Jesus was not a king. With all the hatred, all the cruelty that is found in the heart of sinful, unbelieving man, these soldiers scoffed at the very thought that Jesus was himself a king. <coughs> They would make a spectacle of Jesus now for the sake of getting that point across to the Jews. Maybe then the Jews would see Jesus for who he was, a fraud. A powerless fool who made great claims to glory but really was a nobody, a poor peasant man. The Jews would then see this and maybe maybe they would let Jesus go. Pilate would not have to condemn an innocent man to death, but that was not to be the case. And that then is why Jesus was arrayed like a king now before these soldiers. But this clothing of Jesus in mock royal attire was really not enough to fulfill the hatred of these wicked, unbelieving men. It is not a part of our text tonight, but it does indeed need mentioning, since it is a part of the terrible abuse Jesus now suffered at the hands of these soldiers. Before giving Jesus over to the soldiers to mock and to abuse, we find in verse 26, the verse immediately prior to our text, that Jesus was scourged. Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, 
he delivered him to be crucified. <clears throat> the Roman scourge, people of God, was an instrument of cruelty, a horrible instrument of cruelty. It was made of a short handle with several, perhaps around ten, short lashes of cord that came out of that handle, or leather, that came out of that handle. Most often at the end of those lashes were pieces of metal or bone in order to weight the lashes that they would go out. <clears throat> the person scourged by the Roman Empire was tied to a post with his back exposed and the one applying the whip used the full force of his strength to flog the man. The result of such scourging was that deep, bloody gashes were opened upon a man's back. If too many lashes were applied, it could, and it did at times, kill a man. The result of such scourging was that upon Jesus' back were laid many open gashes, not just little welts that may have been caused by a whip that didn't have those ends to it, but long, deep gashes, bloody gashes on Jesus' back. Now, I know the account doesn't speak of that fact, but we are not just simply drawing from tradition either. The <clears throat> Bible speaks of those bloody stripes on Jesus' back. Matthew 53, we read of those very stripes that had been laid upon the back in verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now, maybe the psalmist himself gives a little bit more vivid of a description of those welts upon, or those gashes upon Jesus' back. We read in Psalm 129, verse 3, the plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The idea, of course, of furrows being long, open gashes. Jesus had already been given a horrible beating, therefore, and now these soldiers set to mocking him, and mocking Jesus, they did. The end of verse 29 of our text. They mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! So they bowed the knee before Jesus as he sat there among them, and said, Hail, King of the Jews! Humiliation? None greater. Jesus sat there quiet, and yet with the power to strike every one of those soldiers dead. They 
on the other hand, with no fear of Jesus at all, looked at him as a weak, pathetic man who contained no power whatsoever. With no fear in the mockery that they leveled against Jesus. Hail, King of the Jews! And with loud laughter and mockery of Jesus, they made him out to be the disillusioned dreamer that they thought him to be. Yet that wasn't enough either. For these battle-hardened soldiers did more. They spit upon him, took the reed, and smote him on the head. As Jesus sat silently in their presence, these soldiers took turns spitting into the face of Jesus and on his person. So mixed with Jesus' blood and with his sweat, now was added the spittle of men running down his face and onto his garments. The soldiers then took the rod out of Jesus' hand and they lashed it across the top of his head. The pain of the rod mixed together with forcing that thorny crown even the deeper into his brow must have been much pain, and that must have been excruciating for Jesus. John in his Gospel account adds to this abuse of Jesus by the soldiers that they slapped Jesus with their hands. It's little wonder, you know, that after having been awake all night and then having been abused by these soldiers of Pilate, little wonder that Jesus stumbled beneath the weight of his cross while he was walking on the way to Golgotha. The fierce hatred of men for Christ, the fierce hatred of this world for him and his kingdom was shown in the most vivid of ways in the treatment that Jesus Christ himself received by the hands of these soldiers. How a person can be that cruel as these men perverted Christ is hard to imagine. There was no pity on the part of these hardened soldiers. Ah, but how great is the raging of men against God and against his anointed. But does not this event only serve to emphasize to you and me that Christ is not the Son of God? Look at him sitting there, helpless among all of these soldiers. He looks so powerless, so weak, so frail, and, and he didn't do anything to defend himself against these men. No display of power. There was not even the least bit of resistance on the part of Jesus Christ. Is Christ really a king? 
Is Christ really the divine Son of God? You and I look upon the face of this suffering servant of Jehovah, and with hearts filled with faith tonight, we say, Christ is King. And that's a glorious reality. He is King. He may not look like it sitting here before these soldiers, but don't forget that Jesus Christ was veiled over in human flesh. And that means that he appeared in weakness before men. But Christ is king. That is the reality, people of God, even though all this may seem contrary to fact as we see him crucified and as we see him suffering at the hands of wicked men. Christ is king. He's king from two points of view. He's Christ simple or he's king simply because this Christ is in fact the divine son of God who has been sent to you and me from above by our father in heaven. Christ is the only begotten son of God who was sent down to be born now into our human flesh. We believe that. We believe that Jesus Christ is divine. He's no mere man. He's God with us. And we well know that God is king. God reigns over heaven and earth in his dread majesty and in his power. God is the sovereign ruler over all of the creatures of his hands. He created all things by his power. He upholds all things by that same word of his power. And there is nothing that happens in this world apart from that sovereign direction of our king. Our God reigns. Well, Christ is God. And that means that even as God is king, Christ is king. He reigns. He may have come down from his glory on high to be born of a, of a mere woman, but that does not change the fact that Christ, according to his identity, is in fact God, and God is king. Christ may have assumed the weakness of human flesh, but that doesn't diminish for you and me who look upon him with the eyes of faith now, the glory that belongs to Jesus Christ as our King. That in the first place. Now add to that the fact that Jesus Christ, after his suffering and death, arose and ascended into heaven to sit at God's right hand. From God's right hand, Christ rules over all of the creatures of God's hand. In heaven and on earth, Christ has become for us our king. He sits in heaven, in the heavens, apparelled in majesty most bright and girded round with might. That's true of our Lord and our Savior. Now he sits on a throne and he wields his scepter and he is crowned with the crown of glory and life. Christ is king. 
And in the face of this utter humiliation, now, our eyes of faith are not taken off of our king. But we are focused on the glorious reality of what's going on here at this point. It is not disappointing, is it, for us? Well, it might seem. Just a little disappointing that Christ didn't display his power, perhaps, at this point as that son of God, that king. I mean, maybe it would serve to strengthen our faith just a little bit more in Christ if he, with one word, just caused all these soldiers to fall dead at his feet. Or at least would it not have been a better testimony to those who ought to believe in Jesus Christ but do not to show his divinity by rendering them all powerless at this point so that they, they could not do anything against him even though they wanted to. I mean, how often didn't Jesus perform those miracles during his earthly ministry? Jesus would have only let those men know that he was, in fact, that king as the Son of God, and that they were powerless before him. But we have to look beyond outward appearances at this point and see, like I said, what was really going on here as these soldiers were beating upon our Savior. Jesus was fighting a battle right now. Maybe it didn't look like it while he was sitting there, but Jesus was fighting a battle. He was fighting there in that common hall. He was fighting there as our conquering king. And we ought not to forget that. Jesus was not some passive, pathetic weakling who could do nothing at this particular point against his enemies. We know he could have struck down his enemies with a single blow because they were in fact weaklings in his sight. But if Christ would have done that, he would have lost the battle. battle that he was even now fighting. The battle Christ was fighting at this point was for our spiritual lives, people of God. The battle that Christ was fighting was for the hearts and the souls of God's people at this point. You see, we had been taken captive by our enemies. And they enslaved us to themselves, to sin and to Satan. Our hearts, our minds, our wills, and our bodies were chained to sin. And we couldn't do anything about it. We didn't even want to do anything about it. Furthermore, because of our sin, we were subject to eternal death. There was no escaping the punishment that you and I deserved on account of our sin. We needed, you see, 
to be set free from that prison into which we had been thrown when man fell into the ways of sin. And for that reason, God, in his great mercy and in his grace, sent Jesus Christ into this world in order to fight that battle against our enemies, Satan and sin and death, and that to set us free. Christ was doing that at that particular moment while he suffered under the hands of these soldiers. Christ was fighting that battle as our conquering king, and we may not doubt that, not even for a moment. But the only way for him to fight that battle and to win that battle was suffering the rejection of men and the wrath of God against sin. Jesus had to go the way of the cross, and all these events led to that suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. And even as Christ suffered here under the cruel tortures by the hands of wicked men, he was earning for you and me freedom from sin. That we must see, first of all, in all of these events that surrounded Jesus walking the way of the cross. Christ had to shed his life's blood. And believe me, the blood was flowing now. It was flowing out of his brow. It was flowing from his back. Christ had to shed his life's blood as an atonement for our sin because there was no other way that you and I could be delivered from the corruption and the pollution of sin itself, being slaves to sin. Christ had to crush the head of Satan, you see. He had to crucify our sin together with him on the cross so that the power of sin could no longer rule over our hearts. Christ had to pay the price of sin on the cross by bearing the burden of God's fierce anger against our sin and suffering hell for us. And only in this way could deliverance from sin be had. Only in this way could we be made free. Christ was walking step by step in that way that led to his death. And he was not the victim of some cruel twist of fate. He was not. He was actively fighting. Not passively. He was actively fighting that battle against sin. Actively fighting the battle that would lead to our freedom. And he won that battle too. We are free, people of God. We are free. The debt has been paid. The power of sin and Satan have been destroyed. He won the battle. But there's more. There's more. Something far more glorious for us to behold in the events that took place now in the passage before us tonight. Christ emerged from this horrible humiliation into the highest state of exaltation. Christ earned the right by means of all of this suffering to rule 
over all the world and to rule over you and me. There's a reason that Christ sits at God's right hand in the heavens right now and rules presently over this world from his throne there. He earned that right. He earned it. Christ merited that right by means of conquering sin and Satan on the cross. Christ earned the right because he sat there before these horribly cruel men and terribly weak men and perfectly obeyed the will of God. Perfectly. Something that we could never do. Perfectly obey the will of God. He did it. He did it. He came to do the will of God in perfect obedience in order to earn for you and me the righteousness that is now ours. He did not rebel against God, but he followed humbly in the way God chose for him to walk in order to conquer sin. And because Christ humbled himself, we learn in Philippians 2, because he humbled himself even unto death, God has given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow and every tongue should confess what? That he's Lord. And that means he's king. He's king. You see these soldiers here, people of God, bow the knee to Jesus in mockery and derision? Well, someday, those soldiers will bow the knee to Jesus Christ when Christ comes again in judgment and executes his righteous judgment over all men. There he will reveal to all of the world that he is Lord and he is King. I know. I know. We see Christ in his suffering here in this passage. But we believe that all of this was done because Christ, after all is said and done, is king. And he is crowned such a king before God. It is pretty cruel. What these soldiers did to the Lord, whom we love and whom we confess, was cruel. In utter horror, if we were standing there, in faith anyway, we would have turned our eyes away from the gory sight that was publicly displayed for all people to see. And in faith, we would have wept bitterly for Jesus Christ, wouldn't we have? An account like this can almost bring tears to one's eyes. We can do that even now, tonight, huh? If we were to focus our attention simply on the details of this account, it could bring tears to our eyes. But that's not the intent of the Bible here in giving us all of these details. It's not the intent of the Bible here to make us feel sorry for Jesus, which we might be tempted to do. 
The scriptures do not intend for you and me to weep and mourn over the event of Christ's suffering and death on the cross. Our attention must never, therefore, be drawn merely to the earthly. We focus our attention on the spiritual. Christ was fighting for his kingdom at this point. Christ did win the victory over sin and Satan. There is, therefore, for you and me, no more condemnation, for we are in Christ Jesus. Sin will no longer condemn us. Our foe, Satan, can no longer accuse you and me of anything because we're in Christ, and Christ has won the victory. So we respond tonight. Oh, yes, we respond tonight. Not by crying. Not by sorrow. Here is our response tonight. And we do not do that in mockery. We say it with believing praise, don't we? Oh, hello, King Jesus. Thine is the kingdom. Thine is the power. Thine is the glory forever and ever. Our Christ reigns in the heavens. And we praise him tonight as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We praise him for the salvation that he has earned for you and me. And we praise him for his rule of grace in our hearts over us today. We bow before him in humble submission. Hail, King of the Church. Amen. Our Father and our God, we are thankful for the suffering and the death of our Savior Jesus Christ. It brings joy. To our hearts, because we know that our King lives and that He reigns forever, and that we are citizens of His kingdom in this world. And certainly we pray that Thou wilt accept our praise, the praise of Thee, our God, for sending Him to us to save us from our enemies, and the praise that we give to Thy Son, Jesus Christ, who sits even now at Thy right hand. Father, we pray that that praise might be upon our lips always, not just tonight when we are lifted up spiritually by thy word, but may that praise always be upon our lips as we go forth and live in this world of darkness. Our Lord reigns, and we're thankful for that. Thankful for his care, for his guidance, for his church and for us as individual saints in that church too. Bless us tonight by thy word and thy spirit, for Jesus' sake.